We are back with another episode of Locked In with Ian Bick. On today's episode, we have a super, super exciting guest, Danny Collins, who in his early 20s is drafted to the Atlanta Braves and with a raging drug addiction, spirals out of control and loses everything, resulting in spending nearly 10 years in a Florida state prison. Thank you guys for tuning into the show. Make sure you guys like, comment, subscribe, and share. And sit back, relax, and enjoy Locked In with Ian Bick. Danny Collins, welcome to the show today. Super, super excited to have you on. We first met in Pensacola back in April at the um, National Reentry Association Conference that I'm now a board member of. Um, and I met awesome. you, I met you and some of the other guys, and I knew we had to get you on the show. I'm glad you made the trip out here today. I appreciate you having me. Going to be throwing softballs, curveballs, baseballs, the whole no, nine keep yards. keep them soft. We need to lob them in there. <laughs> awesome, man. All right, let's start at the beginning of your story. You have a super crazy story. This is definitely going to be one of our longer interviews. Um, so let's, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from and what's childhood like growing up for you? I was raised in Fort Pierce, Florida. I was raised to believe my stepmom was my biological mother. Uh, there was a time that I was playing basketball out in front of my house. These two girls came riding by on a bicycle. Uh, one girl pointed to the other girl and said, Daniel, that's your sister. That's Rebecca. That's your sister. And they just kept on riding. And I didn't say anything. So I go in the house, um, don't say anything. A couple weeks later, I go to school and the same girl comes up to me. and She says, Daniel, you don't know me, but my name's Rebecca and I'm your sister. And I like panicked. I ran down the hallway, didn't know what to say. Uh, never communicated to my parents. Um, there wasn't much communication in my household. But when I was nine, I got a little league uh, or birth certificate I had to take to the little, little league coach. And on the birth certificate, I read it and it said that my biological mother's name was Yolanda Fields, but the lady I was calling my mom, her name was Jamie. So the names didn't match up. And it was the first time that I like it, I really realized, but at nine years old, like you don't know how to really process that stuff. So I remember going to my little league baseball coach and saying, one day I'm going to grow up and play professional baseball for the Braves. So maybe my mom would want me. And lo and behold, years later, I ended up signing, but um, not before like a lot of other crazy stuff happened in between. Uh, when I was 16, I was dating this girl and you know, it's a small town and I'm dating this girl. My parents are super strict and they make me write down the name of the parents and they make me write down, you know, the phone number and the address of where I'm going. Normally, it's the girl's parents that do that and not the, the guy's parents. Yeah, my, my parents were super strict, right? And so I do this, and when I, when I write it down, my dad looks at it, and he's like, you're not going. And I was like, what do you mean I'm not going? And he says, it has something to do with your biological mother. I'll talk to you about it later. This is the first time ever in my household that it's brought up that the lady that I've been calling my mom, she raised me as my, you know, my mother, but I always kind of knew that she wasn't. And then obviously with the birth certificate, I really saw that she wasn't. But like, I just felt like the way she treated me and the way she treated my sister was differently. And a lot of that could have been my own perception because of how I felt on the inside. But um, so my dad's like, you're not going over there. So I go over there anyways, of course, because I didn't 
follow many rules when I was younger. And when I get there, I share what happened with the girl that I'm dating. So the girl ended up, her dad ended up being a cop. And uh, that's what my dad asked too. She said, he said, is her dad a cop? And I was like, yeah. And then that's when he said, you're not going over there. It has something to do with your biological mother. So when I go over there anyways, I share it with her. She brings this to her dad and come to find out, I don't know, it was like a crazy story. Like her dad was related to my biological mother. They were like second or third cousins. So here I am dating this girl that like I'm related to. So it's some type of incest if anything happened. <laughs> but I was a virgin, like for real, a virgin. I was a virgin. So, um, but yeah, like it was crazy. So I'm dating somebody that I'm related to come to find out I had two sisters with my biological mother that still to this day that I never met. But, um, that was like a big part of my life. Cause I always had this resentment towards my family, towards my mother, even towards my stepmom, um, for not knowing her, you know, like, but that came like later on in life. What about like early on who, who was raising your, your real father, my real father and so- the stepmother who was, you always thought was your mother at first. Yeah. So that's who raised me. That's who, you know, we live paycheck to paycheck. We didn't grow up rich. Um, what did they do for work? So my dad worked, my dad dropped out of law school when he had me and when my biological mother left. So this is what I found out years later, but I didn't know at the time. So he ended up dropping out of law school and he came home and worked at a grocery store. He ended up being like a grocery store manager. And, um, through time he ended up working at, uh, for Kraft Foods. So he's ended up working for them for like 25, 30 years. And my stepmom worked at a lumber yard, um, still to this day works there. And I call her my mother, but cause she was there. She was the only mother I knew. She was the mother figure. She was the mother figure in my household, but she was super strict. Like I used to get my ass beat if I made B's on my report card. So like I was a straight A student. There was a time like I had a B on a report card and I tried to like budget <laughs> myself and it was so bad. It was so obvious. Right. But I, that's how scared I was. And, and sure enough, I ended up getting my, my ass whooped behind it. But yeah, I remember the days when the report cards would like come in the mail or get handed directly to the parent at like the parent teacher conferences. Now I think it's different. Like I remember at the end of high school, I would get my grades printed out yeah. and it never got like sent to my parents. I'm sure it's all different now. So I remember I had like the report card. It was like big and it had all your classes with the grades, but then down here would have like the, the behavior. So like my grades were always straight A's, but my behavior was always unsatisfactory. They had satisfactory in and unsatisfactory. And, um, so like I was a bad kid, like I was always in trouble, but I compensated for that because I did very well in school. What do you think that was from? Like, why were you like lashing out or acting out and, and being like that type of kid? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, I kind of chop it up to the relationship that I had. Like there was no love in my household. It was very, um, disciplined, you know, there was no affection. So there was no, I love you. There was no, um, hugging or touching or anything in my household. So it was very strict. It was performance-based love. It was like, okay, if you do a B and C, then D will happen, you know? Um, that's actually very interesting too, because people that have, from my experience, childhoods like that, that carries on like for a while, sometimes even forever. Like I'll, I've met people who come from those types of backgrounds and 
they have a hard time accepting love or, or even giving love because they didn't experience that as a child. Like my parents raised me in a very loving and an affectionate type way. So that's the type of person I am now. So yeah. it's interesting to see like the different families that people come from and how that like shapes us growing up and as humans. Yeah. Family dy- dynamics definitely play a role, uh, especially with the emotional maturity. And I think that was a big part of my stories. I never knew how to mature emotionally because there was no communication. We didn't talk about things. It was the, I come from the era where, you know, men, you suck it up and you get by and, and that's what it is. And I remember even going to therapy with my dad when I was 18. Uh, they ended up sending us to therapy and it was the first time I ever seen my dad cry. And it was, had to do with my biological mother. So the whole conversation about her came up and he started bawling, crying, and I never went back because I didn't, I couldn't stand to see my dad in that state. You know, it was like, a lot to process. Yeah, and my dad was like my childhood hero. So, what about the relationship with your sister? Were you guys close at the time? So I have a half sister with my stepmom and my dad. Which you didn't know at the time was your half sister, though. No, I didn't. So yeah. I, I just consider her to be my sister. Now I had two other sisters, my biological mother that I haven't met. But were yeah. you close with that half sister? I wasn't, and. She tried to be. Um, she was older or younger? She was younger. Okay. So I think we were. So, my family was so like split down the middle. It was like me and my dad and my stepmom and my sister. And there was always fights and arguments about the way I was raised. So my dad was real big on if you make straight A's, you play sports, you excel in sports, I'm going to pay for your, your car, your gas, your insurance, make sure you have allowance. Whereas... My mom was more old school, like, no, you need to have a job. You need to learn responsibility. You need to take care of yourself. So there was always that fight there because baseball and school did take up so much of my time. And there's many times, too, like where my mom would tell my dad, like, he needs to quit playing baseball and get a job and learn responsibility. And my dad's like, this is his job. You know, this is going to take him to college and maybe even beyond. And she wasn't going for it like she. I remember one day I was standing there and she was like, one in a million make it. You guys need to quit living in la-la land. And the reality is that the chances are he's not going to make it. But your dad believed in you. My dad always. And that's all you need right there. You just need that one person, especially your father, to believe in you. Yeah. And and, and it goes from there. In high school, are you like bullied or anything too while you're playing sports? I wasn't. No, I wasn't really bullied. I mean, I was a little bit. I was picked on. Because I was different, but because I was smart and because of me playing baseball, like it kind of got me in with the cool kids. But I was always seeking that validation. Like I wanted that acceptance. Like I wanted the the people to accept me. Um, Are you popular then? Like, are you the popular sports guy? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely in the popular crowd, but also like kind of nerdy and awkward at the same time. So you're not like the dick jock type of person. I mean, I guess... The, Depending who you who, ask. Who you ask, yeah. I mean, I, there was definitely moments. But I think for the most part, no. Like, I was I was amicable with people. I was, you know, a likable guy. Like, my personality wasn't to be a dick or a jerk or, or treat people um, differently. I will say playing baseball, like, a lot of my friends, like, especially with travel ball, they all went to, like, the private school. And they come from wealthier families where dads are judges and attorneys and whereas my family struggled so like that was hard because I could compete at the same level 
with baseball as them, but I didn't always have like the nicer clothes, the practice or the, the equipment. And there was times that I would get made fun of for that. Like I would wear the same practice clothes every single day. And I remember kids would like taunt me because of that. You and know? that's gotta be hard to, to, to know you're different. Like at that time period, do you think like the kids that come from the money and come from those backgrounds that you're just describing are like more, or I would say less humbled and, and more like egotistical and, and assholes compared to what you were because of your background? Yeah. I mean, I think naturally when you have a sense of entitlement, it's going to make you a little bit arrogant. And I think even part of me would go that way because I would want to pretend to be like them because I wanted to be accepted. So even if I didn't have money, I wanted to act like I did have money, you know, like because I just wanted to fit in with the crowd. And um, so that was hard. Literally the story of my high school career, thinking that I was like this you know, hot shot. I mean, I wore like a suit and tie to school and mm-hmm. was carrying a briefcase and starting this business. And like, I was a kid that bought everyone dinners and took everyone out just because I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be popular. Like I was chasing that, whatever it was, you know, I was never addicted to drugs. I was addicted to the popularity and the thrill of it. People mm-hmm. talking about me and, and just like in my own mind, wanting to be like the center of attention and, and the center of everything. Yep. And that's what I tell people all the time. It's like you have that spiritual void. You have that void inside of you that you're seeking validation or acceptance. And it doesn't really matter where it comes from. And I mean, in time, you know, that's what leads to some of the decisions people like us make. Yeah. And that's why I'm so like aware of it now, now that my platform's getting bigger and everything's coming together and like we're amassing hundreds of thousands of followers and listeners. I don't want to be like that person I was in high school that's chasing after that. Um, I don't want to be like that person. That's like, like, I don't want to be like so full of myself in that way and just chasing after those listeners and followers and everything like that. I just want to be me and, and be like a regular person when people come up to me, you you know, be humble and, and just act regular and not let that get to me mm -hmm. like it did before when I had nothing in that sense. And now I have more of something where that I never had ever. Yeah. And it, it's just weird, and it's something that s- stays in my mind daily. Yeah, because there have come a point where you be- become beholden to that, whether it's the people, you know, the followers, the likes, the attention. Like, definitely, I can identify with that. Are you drinking or doing any types of substances in high school while you're playing sports? I drank quite a bit. Like, I was the guy that would throw some high school parties. Uh, my parents came home to me throwing a party. Uh, that probably didn't end well. No, it, it didn't. But and then I had an aunt that lived right down the street, and she would always let me throw parties at her house. So, um, but again, it was to fit in. Like I wanted to be the cool kid, and I wanted people to like me. It was all about seeking, you know, that acceptance. And do you think that acceptance came from one the affection aspect that we were talking on, and two, like the money aspect you wanted more? Than what you're, I think it's you know. the abandonment. So when you have, when people have abandonment or rejection issues, like I did with my mother, and it's wanting to have people like you, but at the same time, you'll push somebody away before they're able to reject you, you know, and that's kind of how it works in my relationships. You know, that's how it worked in, in all my relationships. Like I would pull you in, I'd be clingy, get you close, 
But then I would hurt you or push you away before you could hurt me. Yeah. Because I, in my mind, it was happening. It was inevitable. It was coming. You were like traumatized by like that. Definitely childhood trauma. And I blame my parents for a lot. Like not understanding that obviously parents don't get a, a manual that teaches them how to raise kids, you know? So like I was always resentful towards them, you know? So it was hard for me for a long time to even accept accountability for the way I responded to a lot of stuff. But when you have childhood trauma and you don't have access to resources to, to help people through that, then you never know really how that's going to turn out. Yeah. I mean, I hundred percent get what you're saying. Like I feel it so hard, not from my childhood, but just like where I'm at now, like when I'm getting into a relationship with someone, I feel like I have like some past trauma from other people, like abandoning me, other relationships because of like the past with the nightclub and going to prison and stuff that, that, that makes me kind of like anxious now. Like when I'm with someone and talking to someone like, oh, they're just going to like pack up and and leave one day. And it's like a scary, like abandonment type issue. And I'm kind of like been trying to dive into like what causes that and the root of that and kind of like how to quell that anxiousness. I tell people all the time when people say that weed or drinking is like the gateway to addiction. And I believe wholeheartedly that that's not the case. The gateway to addiction to me is untreated childhood trauma. And that's what ultimately leads to, because all that addiction is in any substance or even getting addicted to the money or the attention, it's just a symptom of the greater problem, which is really deep inside of us. You know, the problem has always been me and my inability to learn how to cope with life, learn how to process emotions and feelings, you know, and that's where the anxiety comes in. And that's where, you know, a lot of the PTSD comes into play. Yeah. And it just, it's just, it's super important to work through it. Ask for help if, if you need the help and just keep going, get up, get back onto the wagon and keep moving forward. Yeah. Now, when, oh, go on. And when you're a kid though, a lot of times you don't know where to turn to help, you yeah. know, especially if you're looking to your parents for guidance and they're, you know, not ones to communicate or show that affection, you know, like I remember getting my ass beat, beat, you know, like, and it was, you know, come from the air of the belts and spanking and whooping and, you know, so that was kind of like the, the way that we um, disciplined kids. And to me, it had an adverse effect. What year were you born? Just so the audience puts in 83. Okay, cool. Uh, I mean, not cool that you're 40, but yeah, <laughs> you yeah. I'm 40. I'm old. <laughs> now, when do you realize you have an actual talent in baseball? I think people were telling me all the, like growing up, I don't know that I ever fully believed in myself. It really hit home for me. I would say there was a year we won state championship in in travel ball and Legion that I had a really good year, but I think after the year after I got drafted, so my sophomore year in college is when I realized like this could really like become something like, this could be a career if I played my cards right. So you didn't think it going from high school into college? I feel like it's fairly easier, so to say, to get a scholarship for sports into college, right, than it is to... I would say so. I went. I was, I was an above average player in high school, but I wasn't like superstar status where people are, are going to go out of their way to come find me. Um, and doesn't like when you're growing up, everyone says everyone's good. Like, I feel like parents are always like, ah, oh, he's the best. And then this, of and course, that. of course, uh, parents always want to hype their kids up and they want to get mad about their playing time. Like I'm very realistic about 
who I am and like where I was at and like, you know what I mean? Like, um, I try to be as like transparent and honest with myself. Like, I think that's part of like my whole recovery process today anyways. But, um, were you like that back then? I would, I don't know. It's hard for me to even, I don't think so. I mean, obviously I think there was that there was arrogance like that, that, what do they call it? Um, it's like this, where you put out this facade where you act like you're superior or better than, but you really have like this inferi- inferiority complex, like on the inside where it's just, you're so insecure, but you don't want the world to see that. So you project a certain person that you're not, you know? Yeah. And I think that was a big thing that I was doing when I was younger. Where did you end up going to college? I went to Indian River Community College. So out of high school, I didn't get hardly any offers at all for baseball. I got a couple like division two, um, NAIA school offers. And the way baseball works is if you, for the draft anyways, for major league baseball draft is that if you go to a junior college, you're draft eligible every year. But if you go to a four year school, then you don't have draft eligibility until after you complete your junior year. But I didn't really have many offers coming out of high school anyways, except for our local community college, which happened to be a really good program. Um, And that was a full ride? Not initially. So initially they gave me, I had a 75% academic scholarship because Florida had a bright future scholarship based on grades. And then I also had a 75% baseball scholarship. So I was actually getting paid to go to college my freshman year. But one of the rules were I had to live at home. So I wasn't able to live in the dorms, but I went to the community college in my my, uh, town. So... Not initially, I didn't, but I got drafted to sign with the Braves after my freshman year. I got drafted late. So back then there was 50 rounds in the baseball draft. My freshman year in college, I was like one in four uh, with the 4.5 ERA. Like I did horrible. I was partying all the time. Like I was taking all the college kids that came in because we had college kids there from all over the world. We had um, swimmers. We had a national swim team that was like the best in the country. So they were getting swimmers from like Australia and, and uh, Colombia and Venezuela. Is this a big school? No, it's a small community college, but they were number one in the nation in swimming, both men and women. They won like, they had like the longest streak ever for national championships. It's crazy. If you look it up, any river community college, but they also didn't have much competition in the state, but they had, they were getting like really good talent. And even our baseball team, we had really good talent. After my sophomore year in college, we had like, eight guys go pro that ended up going pro plus another probably like 10 that went division one so we had a really good team my sophomore year but I got drafted my freshman year in the 45th round and they had like 50 rounds back then but 45th round is nothing like they're gonna offer you no money but they had what was called a draft and follow so after my freshman year in college they drafted me in the 45th round I say no obviously they're not offering me any money but what they do offer is for me to sign my rights to them. So with the draft and follow, you sign your rights to that team. You go back to school for another year. You mature on the baseball field. If you get better, they have a, like a week or two grace period before the next year's draft to sign you. If you don't do better, then you can, you're free to go back into the draft. Or if you don't want to sign with them, you go back into the draft. So I went back to school. I signed my rights to the Braves, went back to school my sophomore year. 
and ended up having like the best year of baseball in my life. That's when I knew like, okay, this is, this is real. And you didn't know before that when the Atlanta Braves are approaching you. I mean, that's every kid's dream. I know when I was growing up, I think we had one kid that went pro pro football out of my high school out of thousands, you know, so the odds of someone like you coming from the small town and yeah, and to even be that, drafted. And I think I kind of underestimated that, but that's a huge accomplishment. And I didn't see it that way then. And this is the other thing though, is like, I was already starting to get into drugs then. So there was a guy on our team that was expected to get drafted. He was one of our catchers. This and is on your college team, on my college team. And he was really good. And he got drafted out of high school. He was expected to get drafted after our freshman year in college. He's actually watching the draft because they only do the couple first rounds televised. Then the rest of the draft is just you see it on the computer. You know, you can follow it. So I'm out partying on X, like been up for a couple days partying and not even following the draft. Well, I get a phone call from him and he calls me up and he's like, yo, uh, they called me D.C., so my initials, you're like, DC, man, you just got drafted by the Atlanta Braves. And I'm like, get out of here. Like, no way. I hung up the phone, you know. So he calls me back again and tells me, he's like, dude, I'm being dead serious. You got drafted. So I still didn't believe it. I was skeptical. Ended up getting off the phone with him. Still partied the rest of that night. Well, the next morning, I got a call from a guy by the name of Marco Patti. He says, uh, Mr. Collins, congratulations. This is Marco Patti with the Atlanta Braves. We selected you in the 45th round of the draft. He said, now we have no intentions of signing you this year, but we would like to talk to you about what our plans are for you. And that's what kind of opened up to that, that door. What was going through your mind when you're signed? Like, who's your first phone call? What's your headspace like? Uh, I called my dad, of course, because like my dad was my hero. Um, and I know that he sacrificed so much for me to be able to play baseball. So I called my dad. Uh, there was a girl that I called that I was dating in college at the time that was on the volleyball team. But I don't think it really hit me until the following year when I went back to college. And this is literally every single college sports athlete's dream to get this phone call. It is, but... They want that. They want that phone call earlier. Like they want the early round drafts, like where there's an opportunity for money. But most players, it doesn't even matter if they can just yeah. play. You know, if you can sign, obviously that's a big deal. You know. Uh, now, what made you stand out? Why? Why you? Why did they? Why were they interested in you? Six foot three, left-handed pitcher. I mean, and what's the significance? And that's exactly what they said because yeah. I was left-handed pitcher is like the number one way to, to probably. It's like the. It's the most rare person or athlete you know there it's a left hand first of all to be left-handed and a pitcher it's like the, the highest demand because you don't see it too often so and they use left-handed pitchers for you know they'll come in they'll they'll make a whole career out of just coming in and facing one batter you know that's what how left-handed pitchers like the longevity of what their career can be just because based on that alone um because there's there's such a need for it but in the fact that i was six foot three and Back then, I was super skinny, though. I was probably 160 pounds, six foot, 360 pounds. So that was the big thing the Braves told me. It's like, I needed to hit the gym when I go back to school the following year. You know, work out, gain some weight, mature. Now, say you got drafted as like a freshman or softball, sophomore in college. Do you finish college or do you just like leave? Like the, I, the typical person that gets drafted. So if you get drafted, like I said earlier, you, 
the only way you can get drafted after your freshman or sophomore year is to get go to JUCO, junior college. So if you do that and then you get drafted, then you're draft eligible. Then so if you decide to sign, then you have to report to camp. And you're done with college. You're done with college. Now you lose your college elig- eligibility too. So that's the uh-huh. other thing. So because th- that's how like the young players get in, they just skip college completely. So if it doesn't work out professionally, then they're kind of starting back at zero. Yeah. Well, and then you lose your collegiate el- eligibility, which is a huge thing. But most people get it in their contract, and I did too. Is that where the professional team like the Braves had to pay for my remaining years in college so at that point I still had two years left because I got my A degree and I'd signed with FIU down in Miami after which is a good school which is a good school and back then they were like around 25 top 30 in the country Um, but even then I did that prematurely because I signed in the fall and had I waited till after the spring season because I matured so much from my sophomore year from my even from my freshman year but from my sophomore year from the fall to the spring like it was night and day I mean I ended up going from throwing like 87 88 to like 90 to 92 touch 93 ended up throwing the only no hitter in our college history uh I started out the season as the number two pitcher by the end of the season I was neck and neck with our number one who was also like really good um but so you had a great year. You're officially signed with the Atlanta Braves. They take you up on it. So after, yeah. So after my sophomore year, they had the grace period to sign me. They made me a few offers. My agent was like, ah, don't take it. Don't take it. I ended up signing. Yeah. What was the whole process like with dealing with an agent, the money, the contract, being so, that young? You're what, 22 at the time? 21? No, younger than that. 19. So what's that like? Yeah. So the way it works is that if you're, if you still have collegiate eligibility, you're not allowed to officially sign an agent. You can have a financial advisor, but the team still has to talk directly to you. They're not allowed to talk to him. If you sign with him officially, now you give up your amateur status and now you're a professional and you're no longer allowed to play college ball. So the way that works is the team will make an offer to you. You take that offer to the agent, this guy that's gonna be your agent, and he'll tell you yes or no. You take it back to them. You go back and forth that way. Now, once you officially sign it on the on the dotted line, now he gets his his cut. So, my agent was a, a guy by the name of Bill Rose and Brian Doyle, and it was uh, D R M, which was uh, Doyle Rose Management, something like that. But my agent Bill Rose was a part owner of the Yankees, and Brian Doyle uh, played for the Yankees, and he had like this really crazy. Um, World Series with the Yankees, and that's what he kind of like his hype was. But so you had a good team behind you. Yeah, I definitely had a good team that had some. They found you some I'm, clout. They yeah. found me, okay. and it was through my college pitching coach. So my college pitching coach was a former pitching coach for the Dodgers, a guy by the name of Jim Stokel. So so you're stacked on the roster for. Yeah, for your I had team. a lot of people behind me, and I had a lot more people that believed in me more than I believed in myself. Because I still, I was still like that insecure little boy. And I still had all this emotional trauma that I never processed. So I got in trouble even in college. They weren't even going to ask me to go back for my sophomore year. Like I lost my scholarship after my freshman year because I did so horrible and I was partying all the time. The only reason they even brought me back was because another guy, one of our pitchers, ended up signing with the Twins. So they needed 
they had an opening spot and he ended up telling me, I'll give you, you know, a full scholarship. And I think part of that too, is because the Braves signed me. So that guarantees that scouts will come out here. You so know. you got another chance. At, so at he gave me another shot. So back to the contract, what's, what's that process like to, to, with the negotiating aspect? Uh, they had a, a week grace period. So first day he calls, says, we're going to offer you 80,000. Uh, I take it to the agent. He says, no. So they were thinking I can get somewhere around like 500,000. So, so you're doing the, you're the middleman. I'm the middleman. The man. agents aren't that the agents, whatever you want to call them, aren't talking. They're to, not allowed to. Yeah. Cause then you give up your amateur status if you do it. So like, that's the hard part about it is like, they're, they're coming at me. I'm a young kid. I have no idea about how the industry works, how people are, you know, like, obviously their goal is to sign you for as little money as they possibly can, you know, and to get you to give up the rest of your collegiate years. And they succeeded. I ended up doing it and I probably shouldn't have. How much did you sign for? 175,000. And out of that 175,000, how's the split work? How much do you get? How much? Do I had to give him 3%. So it wasn't much. Now, had the roles been reversed, your agent, financial planner, whatever you want to call him, done the negotiating, do you think you would have gotten more? Absolutely. So you kind of got like taken advantage of and, and railroaded in that scenario. Yeah, I definitely don't believe that that should even be allowed. I don't know if they still do it, but... And you're a kid that came from no money. So that was a lot of money to yeah. me. Yeah. I mean, that was a whole... And my dad's telling me, so I'm calling my agent, I'm calling my dad. My agent's saying, no, hold out, we'll get you more. Your dad's saying too. And I was a lifelong Braves fan. You got to think too, like I wanted to play for the Braves. I knew it was a good organization, but my agent's saying, no, you're going to go anywhere from the second to the sixth round back in 2003. That's anywhere from 750,000 to, you know, 200,000, maybe a little less, you know, 100,000 if you're six rounds. So like I kind of fell into like fifth round money when I signed. Which is a lot of money. Back then, in back the then, at that time, yeah, it was a lot of money. Fifth round money. If you're in the top five, ten rounds of, of of draft, you know, then you're doing well. But, and you also wanted to like stick it to your stepmom too, that you could pull it off in the back. Oh of your mind. God, yeah, that was like a big thing, and I'll never forget because when I finally did sign that contract, you know, the scout for the Braves came in, the agent came, you know, they bring the big check, and you got the big check. Yeah, they can you the, cash that check, or how does that I work? I don't even know how the hell that works. <laughs> no, because I ended up getting. I ended up breaking it down. I got multiple checks. So there was a different tax bracket. So that was something else that they told me. So I broke it down into a couple of different checks to fall under a different tax bracket. So I remember I would get the check the first of January of each year. Which isn't even that much. No. Uh, I ended up blowing through that money in you know, no time at all, a couple of years. I mean, you give a kid that much money that has no comes money. comes from nothing yeah. and no emotional maturity. Yeah. I mean, I look at when I was handed $500,000 or, or more than that, and you see the outcome that that happened with. Yeah. So it's just, it's not a good mix. Yeah. And there was no one like giving you advice saying, Hey, put it into a, you know, a business account, do this, do that. My dad was trying. I wasn't listening. Like he was trying and I got wrapped up with drug dealer friends, you know, people you call your friends that, and they're really like making money off my money <laughs> they, they leached you know onto I mean? you because now yeah. you're the rich popular baseball player yeah and in my mind like this wasn't going to end like this was just the beginning of you know like in my mind i'm going to make it to the big leagues like at that point like i felt i had the talent to make it you know and this was a stepping stone to get to 
the, yeah, the you next have to level. climb through the ranks of and do your time, get the real money. Yeah. Do you report to like camp right away? How does that work after the signing? Yeah. So I had to report. Um, our spring training was at Disney Wild World of Sports, and then they ended up sending me to advanced rookie. So they have low rookie and advanced rookie. Like that's your first stop. And what does that mean? What's the difference between those two? Usually the low rookies more like high school players, people that are coming out of high school. They have high school players in the league. Yeah, guys, well, after their senior year, you got guys that literally signed right out of high school. That's crazy. 18 years old. Yeah. So you got some, uh, you know, like Dominican players or Venezuelan players that they're signing at the age of 16. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So you're in the advanced league. What's what's training like? What's it like for you? Uh, my first year, I was like one in six. I had one win, six losses, but I had a really good ERA. We just couldn't hit. Like our team wasn't that good, but... And you actually got playing time. Yeah, I was a starter. So, but there was a lot of politics to it. And the way baseball works is obviously the people that get the money invested in them, they get the playing time. So there was a couple other guys that I've seen that were performing really well. But because they had somebody who signed for a bunch of money sitting in front of them, then they didn't get the playing time. And that, that person that got the bunch of money could be doing horrible on the field and not putting up any kind of numbers. But because the investment was with them, it's, it's a business, you know. And that's, what, that's the part of it I didn't like because I didn't understand it. You know, I was young. Do you get a salary, too, on top of your signing bonus? <laughs> Minor league players get paid jack, like, and I, it's, it's a crime. And I think they started to make a, a change with it, but... Well, what, what was your salary? $800 a month. At plus room and board, or you, you're paying... Yeah, for... no, they're paying for room and board. Okay. So, food, too? Food, two meals. They're giving you a per diem, like $10 no, a or, meal. What's that, a, a fucking couple of big, big doubles and big yeah, chickens back then? Yeah, I figure this is 2003, so money, yeah. I guess, went a little the bit The dollar farther. menu was actually the dollar menu yeah. back then. Now you go to McDonald's, <laughs> the dollar menu, everything's like two twenty-five. It's crazy. Yeah, so they... It's crazy, because in the minor leagues... They, there's no players union, so they own the rights to you and it's strict. I mean, we literally had to have short haircuts. Our face had to be clean shaven. We had to have collared shirts on everywhere we went with our shirts tucked in with khaki pants on or shorts. Like anytime you represent the team, this is how you had to go out. And they give you literally $800 a month. So I got a paycheck. I think it was like $400 every two weeks, but they did pay for the hotel. But when you're Anything that they pay for, you got to go by their rules. So you got to be in by 10 o'clock. They own you. Yeah. yeah. No alcohol, no girls. Like, and I was partying a lot. So that was trouble for me. What was it like to be a professional athlete in an era where social media didn't exist? Like, what's that like back then? Uh, there was no smartphones. There was no, no there yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I mean. Is it just like girls waving you down? They see you. How does that work? That's crazy. You have girls literally waiting in the hotel. Like, and, it, and it's kind of, what's funny, it's, I don't know if it's funny or not, but so there's always with the Braves, there was this chick and I don't even know what the heck her real name was, what, but she, she hopped to each Brave. Dude, she went by the name Horny. They called it like Horny. Like, and this is not even a joke. Like, this is a real story. And she would show up at spring training. She would show up at every minor league team in like. The running joke with the guys was that you had to sleep with her in order to get to the big leagues. Like, you wouldn't make it unless... But she would take guys, and these guys would sign for 800000 a million. She would take these guys to the mall and, like, buy them stuff. She would buy them stuff? Buy them stuff. Wow. Yeah, like, and I guess she had daddy's money. Like, and 
it was insane. But there were so many girls like that. Like, I you still go like to the that hotel now, room. Man. Yeah, I mean, anywhere you go, they're waiting. It's crazy, like what some women or even men do. Because I have a lot of men that slide in my DMs too. Oh yeah, and I'm even I'm not even like a like a, a hugely famous person or anything. But just, just seeing some guy. of the <laughs> no, but like just seeing like some of the offers that people present, they don't even know me, and they you know they want to buy you stuff, they want to do this, they want to go out with you. Like these are complete random <laughs> strangers. That are doing this, so I, I'm. I could. I could imagine like what it was like back then. Too. And I was wild. Like I was chasing the nightlife. To me, it was just one big party. Like I just had no grasp on life. Like I just had no understanding. Like I wish I would have waited. It's even crazy because my roommate in college was a guy by the name of Steve Pierce, and he ended up winning the World Series MVP with the Red Sox in 2018. But he would always tell me like don't take the money, go to school, like, wait, just wait. <clears throat> You're not ready yet. He and was in the major leagues before you, right? He ended up making it to the big leagues. I signed before him. Oh, you signed before He got him. drafted at the same time as me. But he kept telling you not to but take the But he didn't game. sign. He said the only way I'm going to sign is if they offer me a million dollars. And he, he stuck to that. I remember him telling me that, and he stuck to that. And they didn't, when he ended up signing, they didn't even offer him a million dollars. But he made that and some because he had his head on straight. Like, he was – mentally and emotionally stable like I wasn't so he kept telling me not to sign and I remember sitting in prison and watching him on tv win the world series mvp and was thinking like wow like good for him but like that could have been me and, and this is like a super critical moment that like the audience needs to re remember this moment if you're listening to this right now because it doesn't turn out well for you in the end like as we know but that really could have been you like, that's haunting to think about. Like, that was everything you could have been. That was, yeah, that was supposed to be my life. And I hated baseball. Like, I wouldn't even watch baseball because, like, I was so mad at myself, you know. But because he made it to the World Series, I had to watch it. Like, So how do you get to that point? Where does it all go wrong? I know you're partying when you're playing. You're, you're this famous, you know, guy now with the, the, the draft. You're on the Atlanta Braves where does it really turn bad? So in the minor leagues, like I'm known for partying. And you do I'm, look the part, by the way, of the baseball party. <laughs> well, I'm again. a Florida guy. So when our spring <laughs> training was at Disney in Orlando, so yeah. like I was kind of like homegrown. So like I knew like all the little local spots and stuff. But I started getting in trouble with the team first. And, you know, it's just breaking team rules, being out past curfew, drinking, having girls at the hotel. I mean, there's literally times where they come do room checks and I got girls running out of the rooms like naked. Like it was just ins insanity and um, switching rooms with other players, like just doing a lot of dumb stuff, like really blowing a, a great opportunity. But um, so what happened the last time I got in trouble was like the Braves already told me, like, you're not allowed to go out anymore. At the time, the head of minor league operations was a guy by the name of Dayton Moore who ended up becoming the general manager of the Kansas City Royals years later, but he was like a rising star in the admin side of things. And, um, you know, they told me, don't go out anymore. You need to, you know, lay low and get it together. Well, we all go out. There ends up being a big fight in downtown Orlando. And somehow my name gets thrown in the mix that I was there and the Braves suspend me indefinitely. So... What that means is that they still own the rights to me, but I got to pack it up and go home. But I was so messed up. I was so 
out of it that at times that there was one time I passed out on the field because I was so like malnourished. I went back to spring training after my first year in the minor leagues. I went back the, the, the second year. I was 6'3", 155 pounds, like strung out, like bad. And obviously everybody else knew. They used to make fun of me. They're like, you're the skinniest guy in pro ball. Like I remember them like literally wrapping their hands around my wrist because of like, how skinny I was. Like I couldn't even get the ball to home plate. What kind of drugs were you doing that caused Coke then. Coke. Like it was all a whole Coke. bunch of Coke then. Yeah. And drinking and Coke, drinking and Coke, drinking and Coke. So do you even process when they told you you were suspended indefinitely? Did I that didn't. hit you? It didn't hit me because I was so far gone at the point at that time. Even my agent was like, you need to come down. Cause my agent was based out of like Miami area. Yeah. Could they have saved you or anything? He was trying. Like my dad was trying. My agent was trying. Like I just wasn't listening. I'm couch surfing. I'm air mattress surfing. I've got this money still, so like you I'm still just, have the money. Okay. Yeah, so I'm just partying. I've got drug dealer friends that are like flipping money. So you're making some. Yeah, sad trying, money. but no, but I'm I'm not making it because I'm I'm using it. Like, how uh, how long into your contract was this? Uh, I played probably two and a half seasons before this really got bad. Yeah, well, it got bad after the first year. What do you think could have avoided this? Or was this just destined to happen because of your early childhood, because of the money, because of everything put together? I think even when the people tried to step in, I, I would shut down anyways. But it would have took some serious type of inpatient type of treatment or uh, intervention, which that, that never came. But the people that did try to help, my dad, you know, the coaches, my agent... I just, I wouldn't listen. Cause I, to me, there was nothing wrong. Like I got this, everything's fine. Like you don't, I don't see how bad it really is. Everybody outside looking in can see how bad it is. But to me, it's not that bad. I can't imagine how heartbreaking it probably was for your dad to watch us, for you to achieve that goal, your dream. And then just self-destruct. Yeah. yeah it's for it to and he sacrificed away. everything for me. So like, that's the hardest part for me now. Like more than anything is because this guy literally raised me when my mom left me and gave up his career so you could have a career so i could have a career and made sure like so like that's probably still like the hardest part for me like super hard yeah i mean i'm sure it taunted you like every day since uh, about everything i know like that what i've seen my dad do for me throughout everything that the lengths he's done to protect me and and to help me out and stuff like uh, that. That's I mean, so many times he like he would bail me out of jail. I got arrested in spring training, like at the Braves field. I got arrested. Like the, he went bailed me out there. Um, the many times that I ended up getting in trouble down the road, like there was times where like where I spent all my money. Like I owed drug dealers. Like he's coming to pick me up in like these random locations, paying my debts. Like when I tell you I got bad, like I was literally homeless in the streets, just ending up in all different neighborhoods. Like owing people money i mean like it was it's sad like really like now this didn't just happen overnight so those first two and a half years playing did the team like protect you and bury stuff under the rug when they because they someone had to have noticed that you were getting arrested getting in trouble well i got arrested the first time when i was with the braves and they kind of act like it it happened in the off season but i was at the 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 offense happened in the off season, but I got arrested because there was a warrant out for my arrest. So I got arrested at the field 
and while you're practicing well it was at nighttime oh, so okay. but i was supposed to be at the field the next morning to practice yeah okay and um so and it was a misdemeanor charge but it they they were like well it happened in the off season it's uh, it was a misunderstanding you know so no, you're like no big priv- deal. privilege but it was it was definitely privilege no no hands down you know like uh, and that's, that, I think that was a big downfall for me too, is that every time that I would get in trouble, people would try to shield and protect me because of my career, not realizing that was really doing more damage, you know, because if I would get arrested for disorderly intoxication or public intoxication, they'd slap me on my wrist and then sit, send me right back out there. But it's still untreated childhood trauma. It, it just progressively got worse. And I think that that's definitely changed in society a lot since back then with like the cover-ups and everything. Cause you look at now mm-hmm. they're cutting people right away. Someone gets arrested, any types of sports, they could be a top athlete. Yeah. They're done. That's it. Like oh, yeah. anything hits the news, you have to be very careful. And too this much day is- stuff has hit the public eye now and the mm-hmm. advent of social media, yeah. you know, like you said, smartphones, you didn't have smartphones back then. You so know? it was easier to bury up. It was very mm-hmm. easy to bury, you know, what was going on. And I was still, they invested this money in me. Like they don't get that money back if they release me or something, you know, that ends up being my money. And, and to them, that's not a whole lot of money. They're a billion dollar industry, you know, organization, but still, um, and I, I think them too, like they, everybody just wants to see you do well, you know, like they you know, slap you upside the head and get it together. Now it doesn't just end with you getting cut. And that's it. Everyone moves on with their life. You end up in prison. So what happens between the time you're you're suspended indefinitely and a prison sentence? Um, I'm working like odd jobs. I keep telling everybody I'm going back to baseball. I'm going back to baseball. But were you planning on it, or you were in just my hand? It? In my I was authentically planning on it. Like that was my plans. But I was so wrapped up in addiction that it was impossible for that to happen. Like, but in my mind. That's what I kept saying, because in my mind, I kept minimizing it. Like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know, this is just going to go away or I'll do it tomorrow, you know, and tomorrow, and I just never got it together. Um, so I ended up spending all the money, burnt like all my bridges, had nowhere to go. I go to treatment like my dad's still like trying to get me help. So I went to a treatment center in Jacksonville, Florida. And when I got out of treatment, I started working for a company up there. So I'm working up there for a while. And I meet my wife that I'm with now and she's trying to help me like, and I've had bouts like where I'd get it together and then I'd mess up and I get it together and I mess up. But it got so bad, like where I had like multiple suicide attempts, like I'm taking, This is rock bottom. Yeah, I'm at rock bottom. Like, And your agents have dropped you by this agents point? Agents have dropped me. I've lost everything. Um, I mean, there was a point in time where I'm at my friend's house. He had a 410 rifle. Like, I shoot it. It ends up just missing me. Goes through, like, the... I mean, I could have hurt somebody else. Like, um, I was just a mess. Uh, another time I was in Jacksonville, I took, like... They had me on Suboxone. It was back when they had, like, the stop sign ones. And I took, like, 50 of those and, like, started, like, chewing them up. And I, I swallowed a whole bunch of uh, Seroquel. I took, like... 50, 100 milligrams Seroquel. Uh, thank God they ended up pumping my stomach. But, like, I was just, I was, I was ready to die. Like, I was just hopeless. I lost everything. You know, like, my whole life, my whole identity was in baseball. 
did losing baseball propel the drug addiction down? Made not, it even worse. Made yeah. it worse. Yeah. Because I, my my identities in baseball, you take that away. Who am I? You know, like I had no idea who I was. Yeah. And my whole life was centered around baseball. Well, that's like one of the worst things that can ever happen to someone when you don't have your purpose and you're yeah. missing that identity. You're just like in limbo. I remember days where like I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. Like to wake up and not have a purpose. That's yeah. scary. And you combine that with drug use. Yeah. You're in a you're in a dangerous situation, right? Very there. dangerous, and not only a danger to myself, but at that point, you become a danger to society too. Like because, and I wasn't intentional on wanting to hurt people, but just a by, natural byproduct of the decisions I was making was that somebody was going to get hurt. If not, I'm going to end up losing my life. But the, when I finally got in trouble, I'd lost everything, even the wife that I'm with now. She's like telling me you can't come back because I'm using drugs. Like can't come back home. So I start driving around, but now this company I'm working for out of Jacksonville, they gave me a company truck and I was a marketing director for like this home inspection company. And this is early twenties or later? Uh, I'm 25, okay. 26. So you're driving around, driving around. Um, at this point I've done graduated in drugs to a needle in my arm, pipe in my mouth. Like, like I am using drugs by myself with nobody else around, like have no friends, like you're a junkie, a full-blown um, I'm junkie. junked out, like completely, like bad, you know. Um, but the company I'm working for, I'm literally driving around, getting high. They had GPS on me, and I'm driving around from. I had to go to real estate agents and insurance agents to market our home inspections to them, and I'm driving around, and they have to. They're they're tracking me. So I'd stop and I'd just get high in the parking lot. I'd never go in and then I'd go to the next stop and I'd go to the next stop. And I'm doing this for a while before um, she finally kicks me out, the wife I'm with now, Jody, and justifiably so because I'm obviously not deserving of, of being there. But I, um, I end up staying with a friend and my friend's selling drugs too at the time he's trying to cut me off as well because even the drug dealer even wants the drug to cut dealers you are cutting me off like that, that's, that's how bad it's getting you're yeah bad. like it got so bad and because i just had no off switch and um so he doesn't want me to go back to his house but i got all my stuff at his house and i go knock on the door and his girlfriend's sister answers the door and i'm like hey do you mind if i come in and get some of my stuff and she's like yeah no problem she doesn't know that he doesn't really want me there. So I go in, I grab some of my stuff, but then I go into the safe and I grab some of his stuff, including some drugs, and I leave. Well, when I leave, I get driving down the road and I'm like, man, I shouldn't have, I should have took everything at this point. You know, I was like, that's stupid me and I should have grabbed the rest of my stuff. So I go back to it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The house. I knock on the door again. This time she opens the door. You knock, you're polite. I'm polite. Yeah, this is crazy, right? So I knock on the door. She opens the door, but there's a look on her face. Like she's on the phone, like probably like I'm not supposed to be there, but she doesn't say whether I can come in. She's probably like, well, I don't know what the, you know, but I know 
them well, you know, like I grew up with them. So like um, when she opens the door and she kind of steps back, I just go in, I go take the rest of the stuff and I leave. Well, as I'm leaving here, he comes with his girlfriend down the road and I get my truck and I leave. Like, I don't care. Like I'm just so far gone. I don't care. Well, she calls the cops. So I'm taking back roads out of the, the neighborhood and I'm getting ready to go back down. I'm going to go beg and plead with my wife with I'm with now, who's my girlfriend at the time, to see if maybe she'll let me in. Like, I really was, had no direction, like, wandering aimlessly. Well, I get to, there's a, a road in my town that takes us out to 95, so I'm going down a back road called Angle Road. Uh, Kings Highway ends up taking you out to 95. Well, I see a cop coming. So instead of me turning right, I go straight. Now, me and him, it's, we're the only people on the road. It's late at night. So when I see him come my way, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not stopping because I see him st stopping the intersection to turn around to come behind me. I said, I'm not stopping. Like, he's going to have to kill me or, you know, like, this is not going to end well. So I end up taking off. He, you know, has the lights on. We get in a high speed chase and I'm going down all these back roads in the, in the town and I end up at a dead end. I'm at a point where I've got multiple cops with their guns drawn on me. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and they're wanting me to get out of the car. And I'm like, I'm not like they have to kill me. Like literally like that's what I'm thinking, like suicide by cop, like my life. I was hopeless. Like I literally lost everything. You wanted to die. I wanted moment. to die at that point. And but I was too much of a coward to do it myself. And that's that's where the hard part was. So I dropped the truck into first gear. I spin it around and now I'm going at them, but I'm not trying to hit them. I'm trying to get away from them. And lucky enough, I didn't hit them and they didn't shoot me like privilege. Again, you know, we talked about privilege earlier, but like just the fact that I'm driving in the direction of cops with the vehicle and they didn't shoot. So we end up going on a high speed chase again. But in my mind, I, I turned the headlights off. But it, every time I hit the brakes, they're on me. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to pull the fuse box. The lights, maybe I can pull the lights and they'll stop chasing me. Now I'm telling you, like, I'm gone, like on drugs. You're like, trying to be like a ghost. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm thinking. So I go fumbling around for the fuse box. Well, I look up and the road ends. And it's a big mound with yellow signs with, you know, pointing each direction. Like, you got to go left or right here. My truck went straight and I caught air. I braced myself and I hit and I hit water and my head hit the windshield and the truck started sinking. And when the truck started sinking, I started panicking and it's filling up with water. It's filling up with water. I'm panicking. I start trying to beat the, the window, open the doors. I can't get it. Well, when a truck sinks, you know, it kind of like buoys out a little bit. So there's a hatch and there's a camper on this truck. It's wrapped in the company I'm working for. It's a Mer Meripro and it's all wrapped in this company. And that's how they identified me on the road too, the cops. So they knew like who to chase. But um, so I, I don't know if I punched the glass or how it went, but somehow, and that's why I got this huge gash here, but I'm going through the back of the truck. Well, I feel like somebody pulls me through and then I go to swim up. Like in my mind, all I'm trying to do is get air because I swallowed so much water. I'm panicking. I just want to breathe. 
like I'm telling myself I'm about to die and the truck still sinking. Well, there's a little pocket of air in the top corner. So I go up for this pocket of air and I grab the air and I'm still trying to think how I'm going to get out of this truck. And there's the, the camper on the back of it. So I push on, you know, the hatch that pulls up. So as I push the corner pops out, well, the truck's going down completely under at the same time that I'm going, trying to go up, but it's like a vacuum. It's like a black hole. It's just like sucking and pulls my shorts off, pulls my shoes off. I ended up feeling like somebody's pulling me out of the truck. So I swim up, the truck goes completely under in my mind. I'm still running. I'm on the run from the police. So I start swimming. I see cop lights up on the canal bank and on the canal bank. And I see a Q beam shining in the water. It's like a spotlight. You know how cops have the Q beam. So I see it and I start swimming towards this Q beam. And after I like, I give up, I, I can't run no more. The current was so strong. And I start swimming towards the Q beam because I was ready to surrender. Well, when I climb up on the canal bank, it's a really steep canal bank. I climb up, I end up passing out. I completely black out. And when I wake up, it's the next day and there's nobody in sight. There's no cops there, there's nothing. Like I'm covered in blood. I just got a pair of boxer briefs on, a t-shirt, my hands sliced open, my face is out to here, like my whole foot, leg, everything's filleted. Like, and I start screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm in like super high grass. I ended up flipping in Taylor Creek Canal in Fort Pierce, but um, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Well, some time passes. I don't even know how much time it is. Cop comes up, ambulance comes up. They get out of the vehicles. They go look in the water. There's obviously the truck is at the bottom of this canal bank, but I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Now they come over. Now I'm cussing them out. You know, you and my motherfuckers left me here for dead. You pulled me out of this vehicle. And you left me here for dead. I need to get to the hospital. And they're like, we didn't pull you out of the vehicle. And I'm like, what do you mean you didn't pull me out of the vehicle? Like, you definitely pulled me out of the vehicle. I need to get to the hospital. And they're like, no, we thought you pulled a Houdini and disappeared. So I was like, well, then what brought you back to this spot? And they said that there was a lady on the end of the street that called the cops, said that there's a white male out here covered in blood um, in his boxer briefs, screaming bloody murder. So... They end up loading me up in the back of the ambulance. They're taking me to the hospital. They keep asking me questions, and I'm so green at the time. They're asking me who was driving. And I'm like, I was driving. You know I was driving. You pulled me out of the vehicle, and you left me there for dead. Like, and they were like, uh, no, we didn't. Like, they stuck to that. But whenever I said I was driving, it was the whole time I was incriminating myself. So I learned that later about the law because technically – with the vehicle being in the water, me there, somebody else could have been driving the vehicle. So, um, you're literally lucky to be alive, lucky to be alive. And like, that wasn't a wake up call though, for you at that moment. It was, it was at that moment, but not long not, term. It didn't last. It wasn't anything substantial. What did they end up charging you with? Um, I got charged with two burglary of occupied dwellings for stealing from another criminal. <laughs> for, yeah. For stealing from somebody that was stealing, but I did steal him a bottle watch and I think a, a laptop and a, a necklace along with you know substances but and he was selling me drugs and a lot of other people too um but so i got charged with two burglary of occupied dwellings i got charged with a burglary of conveyance because i opened up his truck door <laughs> i got charged with 
possession of cocaine, aggravated fleeing and eluding, and assault on the officer, because the officer said that when my vehicle was pointed in his direction, he was in fear of his life. So, like, my vehicle became a missile, which I can understand that, you know. Although I was never trying to hit him, like, I can understand where that could have, that's obviously a very dangerous situation, but. So this is the first time you're in serious, serious trouble. First time I ever got in serious trouble. Like, Are you given bond or they hold you? No, so I was already out on bond for possession of cocaine. <laughs> so, yeah, I was out on bond for possession of cocaine, so they revoked my bond. Okay. I couldn't get out. But, What's your dad saying to you? Uh, first of all, he thought he kept thinking that the cops like literally pulled me out of that vehicle, but he's, he was upset, you know what I mean? But my dad was like my biggest enabler, you know, like he, he was there for me. You know, he got me the attorney. He answered the phone. He made sure I had canteen. Like he, he did whatever he could to like, he was trying to protect me, you know? Was there still a relationship with your stepsister or your stepmom? No, it was out the door at that point. So they never saw me talk to me you know and you get jail time for this so i sit in jail for like 16 months fighting the case and then yeah they finally i played out in front of the judge with the 10-year cap and they gave me what i scored out to which was 52.6 months and a year house arrest is what he gave me but and they was still trying to like because they knew of my baseball career and they were like but he was like somebody who's done this like I can't not make them see the inside of a prison, you know? So you think they still were lenient on you? I mean, most people, if you get two burglary of occupied dwellings, just on paper, that looks bad. Even though the circumstances of the case, like the person that I took it from, all my stuff was at this house, you know, like. Yeah, but you really, I think you needed rehab at that point. I needed treatment, for sure. You didn't need prison. But the fact that I got in a high-speed chase and put people in a cop in dangerous, multiple cops probably. I get it, but but maybe if they had given you rehab first, yeah, I mean, I don't believe in, in that prison works at all. Like, so, and I believe that's what progressively leads people to the high recidivism rates that we see today is because you slap them on the wrist, slap them on the wrist. So you get a bunch of rests that lead up, slap them on the wrist, slap them on the wrist, turn them loose, and then you hit them with the prison. Where in that span was there rehabilitation? Like, yeah. we, the rehabilitation should have started the first time I got arrested for public intoxication, you know? So you go to prison. This is your first time ever in prison. First time in prison. I know you go a second time, so we'll focus on the second time. The first time, though, when do you get out? How old are you when you get out? 31. 31, you get out. How do you end up back in prison for a a way longer sentence? It's crazy because I got out. I was doing well. I had an opportunity to go back and play baseball. At this point, I You had another chance to play baseball. I cleaned myself up. Dude, you're giving a lot of chances through this whole thing. (laughs) I didn't go play, though. Okay. The it would have been for the was pros? on the table. It was it was independent ball, so that would have paid. Yeah, it's, I mean they pay. It's not. It's like below the minor league. So you got independent ball, which they pay you, and there's different levels of independent. Could that ball, have so led to? It could have led back to where you were, where I was. And yeah. are you clean when you get out of jail that first time? Yeah, the first time I was. So what happens? How do, how does that get screwed up again? I'm working at a treatment center. I'm doing very well. Uh, clean for a while. You're probably like the community's looking at you in a positive light. Absolutely. Turn your you life know, around. Ex-baseball player, you know, goes to prison, turns his life around. I'm publicly speaking. I'm helping out. It's a good story. Since yeah. Then. And then I'm actually even helping with the sheriff's department. I'm helping with the public defender's office. You know, like every opportunity I get, I'm going back in the jail. I'm speaking. I'm talking to the youth. And I ended up marrying... Uh, with my ex-wife and 
we had a fight or something and I relapsed like just that one fight threw you over yeah and I relapsed what was it what causes a relapse like what was the trigger I mean anything can cause a relapse like relapse it ends up being to me it's an excuse like the work was never done so if you don't physically do the work inside like if you don't really work on yourself it's only a matter of time and like that that's the difference between me now and any other time in the past is like this time I was willing to give up everything because I knew anything I put before my recovery I would lose like so like I knew that I had to put in the work and I before I was always in a hurry to get back to baseball or to get back to a job or get back to this girl Whereas this time I was like, I don't care. Like I will give up everything. So at that time I'm working in treatment, but I'm not really working on me at all. So I'm not doing any recovery work. And I was working in the private treatment industry, which it was like back then it was the wild, wild west. Like you make a lot of money off people going to treatment. And it was insane. Like I started making, I'm talking about a month or two out of prison. I'm making, you know, anywhere from, six to ten thousand dollars a month that's great money yeah fresh out of prison off just getting people's insurance to get them into treatment so but it's there's a lot of it's unethical in so many ways because it's like a cycle man like they would do what was called patient brokering where they would literally like pay people pay these people to use their insurance to get in like i'll pay you a thousand dollars to come to our treatment facility because i know that our treatment facility is going to charge your insurance $60,000, you know, yeah. or I'll pay you. So like, that's what they were doing. And then they were like paying us so they could do that. Like, and that's illegal. Or they ended up getting arrested behind it. Oh, the owners okay. did. So there is like know. some fraud aspect. Yeah. But it was back then there was so much of it going on, especially in South Florida. Like that was like the hub for it. Yeah. And, um, so you, you're doing good and then all of a sudden doing really well. Happens. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I relapse. How I'm bad was the relapse? For me, it's always bad, you know, because I don't stop. Like, so you just went full blown drug addiction. Full blown back. drug addiction. Uh, my ex wife at the time, like she hadn't known me in addiction; she only knew me in recovery. So like, she's seen a whole nother side of me, and she ended up kicking me out. And that's a lot of pressure on someone. Yeah. That so know being that. a convicted felon too, like getting out of prison, like I wasn't able to put nothing in my name. So even though I'm making a bunch of money, the apartment's in her name because I couldn't put it in my name. And so she ends up kicking me out and justifiably so like I was a not when I'm in active addiction, like look out, like you don't want any, you know, like I shouldn't be around anybody. Um, and that's probably good most for most addicts. But anyway, so she tells me to leave. Well, now I have nowhere to go. And my dad's like, look, you can stay at the house, but you just got to be out of there before your mom gets home. Ah, oh, your stepmother. My stepmom. Who you have no relationship with. I had with. no relationship. No, it started to get a little better then. Yeah. But when I relapsed, they were trying to get me help. And I wasn't, you know, like, they were trying to stop me, you know, like, and I'm blaming her, um, the ex-wife, because, like, I had found out some stuff and I, I blamed her. But at the end of the day, like, it was just me. I didn't do the work. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and I was, everything was a front. Like, I was again, trying to seek acceptance and validation. I got real big into like the church and Christianity and wanting to be, a, you know, and the faith wasn't real. Like it became religiosity. And so everything was just about look at me to accept me, you know? Uh, so I wanted to be validated. 
And uh, so I ended up, re- you know, being super insecure, relapsing. So she, my dad's telling me, you can go to the house, you can shower there, you can eat there, whatever. But please, whatever you do, first of all, don't go rob nobody else. Don't go get in any trouble. And um, be out of there before your stepmom comes home. Well, of course, she found out. And she wanted me to get help. They, they wanted me to get help. And they knew, like, where that would lead for me. Like, they knew... Me and active addiction is, like, it's off to the races. Like, you don't... You know, you're flipping a coin of what's going to happen. Yeah. And um, so she called the cops because she, she wanted me to get help. And cops arrested me. They charged me with a burglary at my parents' house. And um, I had taken a wireless keyboard that was my dad's and sold it and some broken... <laughs> jewelry and pawned it so like super junky stuff where was all the money you were making that was all gone within a couple weeks of with my ex-wife yeah i'm talking about i went through i think twenty thousand on drugs just on drugs in just a couple week time that's crazy yeah but i'm paying the guy to come to the house like you're just throwing it out like you got it yeah like insane and then she cut me off too you know like i just i blew through some like i was just like when i when i blow through money like i blow through money and um yeah um so you steal from your parents house what happens so they call the cops to get me help your parents called the cops yeah my stepmom called the cops like and the cops find you and arrest you they find me they arrest me charge me with the burglary and uh I sit in jail for a while. Like my dad's like, I'm not bonding you out. You need to sit there and you need to get it together. And that's like the final straw there. They're yeah, hoping. And I did, I sat there for a while, but then they started offering me 15 years because of your record, because of my record. Yeah. And, um, because of the previous, so 15 years, 15 years, 15 years. I'm like, dad, this isn't going away. Like, cause my dad's like, no, it's going away. We're not going to press charges. We just want you to like, dry out and get back to where you were, you know, when you were doing good. And, um, so when he saw that they weren't to coming off the 15 years, he bonds me out and my mom goes and pre- signs the paperwork to like not press charges. Like, no, this isn't what we wanted. You know, like the state told her that they were going to get me help in exchange for depositions. Well, when they gave depositions, the state ended up offering me 15 years. Finally, the attorney got it down to seven. And it was at the point where, like, I could have probably taken it to trial. You know, if you took it to trial, your parents could have just went on the stand and said he never burglarized the house. Yeah, and that's what could have happened. Plus, my dad said I could have anything in the house. So even though he was an enabler, like, morally, I'm 100% wrong. But criminally, like, on on the technicality of the law, like, I really had a a you strong think, chance you think but, they were just trying to roast you at this point and i yeah well i think that's what the system does anyways but me too because i think because i i was doing so much in the community with the sheriff's department and with the public defender you know these are elected officials i feel like they maybe had to disassociate you know with me distance themselves from me because here i am doing well and then i relapse and now it's like you're given so many chances. Yeah, and, uh, given so many chances. Like, um, gotta wear it, you know? And me, 
feeling guilty the way I felt anyways. I was like, I was wrong, you know? So like, I'm not going to make my parents get on the stand and testify. Are your parents feeling guilty for calling in the first place? Uh, my dad definitely felt horrible about the whole situation. I mean, of course they did. Like, they didn't want that to happen. Do you, you think know? it was inevitable, though? Like, it would have happened either way? It might have been worse. I might have ended up dead. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, I feel like it may have saved my life. Even though I don't wish prison upon my worst enemy because you never know. Like, it's... You never know which way it's going to go. You could end up getting stabbed and dying in prison. You know, you just never know. But um, just the, the rate I was going, they, when they said seven years, like my wife I'm with now was like, no, don't sign it. Like That was their first offer. This After the 15, they came to seven. Yeah. And you so end up taking that, though. I ended up taking it because I didn't want to put my parents on the stand. And, and I was wrong. Like, I felt so guilty anyways because I was doing so well, and then I messed up again. Like... And I was at the point, like, how does this keep happening to me? Like, how do I keep, you know, beating my head against the wall? So now when you accept the deal, cause you're on bond, do they just bring, do you self surrender? How does that work? Yeah. They, they let me self surrender. So you got to most state cases, you can't self surrender. Normally like when you're found guilty or whatever, they, they take you away. Well, No, I signed a plea deal in the attorney's office and then they get me a court date. So okay. when I went in front of the judge, that's when they cuffed you and that's brought when you they away. Cuffed me. Yeah. Okay. So where are you sent to for the seven year prison sentence? Uh, state. So everybody goes to Orlando reception center and then I went to Avon park. So I was at Avon park for about four years. I got sentenced to seven years, seven in and five out uh, of uh, probation. That's the five out, five out. Yeah. Now, were you at more of an advantage cause you had already been in the system? Like you knew how things kind of worked. Yeah, because I was super green my first time. The second time was worse, though. You're probably getting into more trouble now that you know how the system works. I know how the system goes. I'm getting more hardened, more desensitized, you know. So let's talk about prison itself, what your prison experience was like. What was like a day in the life? What was the place like? What was the atmosphere? Who are you selled up with? Like, who are you around? As soon as you get off the bus at Avon Park, they say, welcome to Camp Cupcake. Like, it was known for being a sweet camp like super laid back. Everybody's got phones, there's cigarettes, there's, you know, drugs, whatever you want, there's at this camp, you know, like that was kind of what the reputation was. So, um, for me, like the first time I never got caught up in the subculture of it, but the second time I did, and again, it was that seeking acceptance and validation, you know, like, and it was hard to be in, in a relationship this time because I was back with my wife and the first time I went to prison, like there was no relationship. So you just kind of do your time and you go home. But like when you're in a relationship and while you're incarcerated, your mind is like always on the streets and what's going on. So that was a little hard, but now when you say prison camp, is this like, is it gang free, politic free? Is this a laid back spot? I mean, no, there's politics anywhere you go. So it's a work camp. So it's not, the way politics work at work camps is a lot different than how they work at main units. Like there's still the flow, the ecosystem, the economy, the, you know, how things flow in there. But, um, technically like you're not allowed to join a gang at a work camp. Like you got to join a gang at a main unit or, you know, at an annex, like there's so many different, you know, rules and, and structure to the politics. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely still gangs there at that time. 
one of my good friends would happen to be one of the head bloods on the pound. So his wife and my wife ended up going on a cruise together and becoming really good friends through the visiting park. We were both going to the visiting park every weekend. So like he was like top dog in, in, and he had to pound like, and he had to pound like with the, you know, but he had it structured. Like he wasn't on any of the BS. Like there was no, you're not putting down on, you know, white boys, even like, the chomos and stuff like that. Like, so there were sex offenders at this camp. A few. Yeah. Not the, cause it's a work camp. So like, but in Florida work camps, now they're starting to let a lot more, um, be at, at the work camps, but because they're going out the gate, most sex offenders can't be at, at work camps, but he wasn't allowing people to put down. He didn't want to stop the flow of money. So, you could extort and stuff like that, but like he kept the violence down. So anytime there's structure on a pound and you've got good politics and strong politics and strong leadership on the pound, the violence is down, the BS is down. So the guards really want it that way because the minute the, the strength of the leadership leaves the pound and there's no structure, it becomes chaos. Well, that's like what they say about the cartels and stuff that the CIA allows certain cartels to operate and, yeah. and this and that because it's it's because they're going to keep the peace. It's yeah. going to exist. It just they want to keep the peace in that yeah. sense, like and, you're saying. And with him on the pound, it was that way. Like for four years, I'm talking about it. It was it was like people were hanging out. Like it was literally now. Like when you say politics, so we're not talking like government politics. What what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, prison politics, you know, there's, there's codes that you go by, you know, there's different rules for living in prison. You know, I tell people this all the time. Like if I'm in prison and somebody comes and takes something out of my locker, I can't go knock on the, the window to the officer station and be like, Hey, so-and-so took this <laughs> out of my stitch. locker. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, you got to handle that. So like, but, um, I mean, just the way there's there's politics in so many different ways in prison i mean um I'm, I'm curious about something do you guys knock on the table to get up out of the prison lunch table we do what, uh, what's the significance at, behind that because we did that in the feds and i was clueless as this young kid in prison when i saw that so the big thing with us was like reception centers where you're not allowed to talk at the table that was kind of like your way of saying okay i'm out you know um but we still did it like at the work camp, but like our work camp was so loose that, I mean, you're getting up off the table and you're walking and talking with people, but some people still did it every now and then they would just knock and get up and go, but what it's just is, like a sign of respect, you know? What is a work camp anyways? Like what's, what, what do you do at a work camp? So work camp, you got a job, like you're going out the gate nine times out of 10, like, where so, are you going? Uh, going to mow yards and like city ditches and random people's yards and parks and yeah and there's different jobs are you in like a jumpsuit or how does that work yeah you're still in a prison uniform wow so you're like the guys on the side of the street picking up garbage picking up garbage doing all that is there like an armed officer keep an eye on you guys of course yeah does anyone ever try to escape I, I mean, you see it happen, but people to do it at that point are dumb because you're on your way out the door. I mean, but some people get get that kind of time or some people get to a work camp with still like nine years left, you know, because I think right when you drop under 10, you can qualify to go out the gate. And how much are you paid for these jobs? Nothing. So Nothing. Florida you don't doesn't get a... pay inmates anything. So, which it's basically like slavery. Absolutely. So and it's crazy because I never looked at it that way, but I had a friend of mine 
his name's Rashawn Clark, and him and I ended up becoming really good friends in prison. I'm this. We had completely two different upbringings, but he uh, he tells me he's like he gets put on a DOT squad, so Department of Transportation. You go out the gate, you go mow, weedy, all this stuff. So when he comes back to the dorm from ICT, when he gets the job uh, placement. He comes back to the dorm. He says, man, I'm going to confinement. And I was like, for what? He says, because they put me out the gate. And I was like, that's a good thing. Like, what's wrong with that? You get to be away from prison. You'll probably get some good street food because the guards will give you some food out there every once in a while. Like, um, it'll be like you're not even in prison. Like, that's not a bad thing. And he was like, it goes against everything I stand for. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, it's modern day slavery. And that's when he went on to tell me about the 13th Amendment, the abolishment of slavery, except when punishable by a crime. And when I went down that and I really began to educate myself, like I completely understood where he was coming from. You know, that prison ultimately became modern day slavery, you know. And that's really wild to think about. Like when when you see that written out and you put it in perspective, it's exactly what it is. It's evolved. I mean, they're paying people, what, 10 bucks a month to work 40 hour weeks. And and, and that's on the federal level. You're saying you didn't even get paid anything. Florida state jobs, you don't get paid at all. So, and if you think about that time, like slave labor was such an integral part of the Southern economy. And you know, you take that away. What do you do? You start making laws that literally target people to lock them up, you know? <clears throat> now, I mean, on paper, like what I did was like the high speed chase is really bad, but like stealing from a drug dealer and my parents, like 10 years in prison to me was a lot. Like when I could have just benefited from some like real treatment. You because know? maybe that second prison sentence wouldn't even have happened. The recidivism yeah, wouldn't have happened, never happened. If, yeah. if it was helped the first time. During the second bit, are you on drugs or are you clean? No, I'm using. You're using in prison. I'm using, like, life just, yeah. You're just going with the flow. I got caught up in the subculture. Of prison. Of prison the second time around, so. What was the craziest thing you've seen in prison? prison? Prison was super insane. So, I mean, at our camp, there was inmates paying guards you know to go into the bathroom and with their wives you know in the visiting park like um and and just to hook up with them yeah (laughs) how much could you pay a guard to hook up with your wife so dude it was so crazy because at this camp they had it where like they had like you'd be like five or six couples and each couple would pay that guard fifty dollars so he's making you know three hundred four hundred dollars a watt sometimes but, and he doesn't have to do anything. All he's got to do is turn his back, you know, and there was a whole system in place. So one couple goes into the bathroom, the other couple stands at the door and wait. And it was funny because there'd be times when like a guard would be, or not a guard, but one of the other inmates visitors would be like wanting to point and tell. And the guy would be like, no, you can't say nothing because prison, you can't snitch. Even though like, the more you think about it, like, but these guys... Not to justify it, but like if you haven't got off in ten years, fifteen years, can't knock the hustle, you get, Yeah, <laughs> but you're also going into the bathroom that is that these visitors are using. So like, yeah. yeah how so, much? How much are they paying for this for a guard to turn a blind eye? 
each couple was like they would pay the guard 50 bucks 50 cash here you go yeah but and you multiply that by six seven eight nine it's a good payday yeah it's a good payday is this the most guards aren't making much money so is this the most corrupt thing you're seeing guards do or is it it worse i've seen guards bringing drugs phones like are there a lot of cell phones at avon park there was nothing but cell phones everywhere and what's everyone doing just they're on whatever Um, dating apps making money Yeah, this is back in the day. They tightened down now. So, like, it ain't like that anymore, but... Yeah, I mean, like, a lot of people, I'll make content about cell phones and prison stuff. They're like, oh, that's snitching. But, like, if you literally Google it, this this shit's been exposed. Like, this thing blew up in the last couple of years. I mean, they literally have ranking of... (laughs) Prisons with contraband, like which prisons have the most contraband? Yeah, they're so not like, stupid. They know what goes on. Yeah. It's all over TikTok. People cooking in the cells. Some yeah. prisons, are, I see girls. There's this one girl I follow that does a live every night in her prison cell. So wow. the prison just giving them phones with social media. It's, it's it's crazy. Yeah, and it rotates like which camps are sweet. So like, and you've got different regions in Florida for prisons. So like this camp will be sweet for a while. Well, then they'll crack down on this one. And then this one will be a little bit more lax. And I mean, there's no, the, and you got to figure like guards aren't making much, you know, to work inside of a prison. Unless they're at overtime and yeah, all that. So it's easily, they're easily compromised. Like you see it time and time again, there's literally a guard that got arrested and and I'm friends with him still to this day, right? We need him on the podcast, man. We got to get him on the podcast because <laughs> yeah, he's get... <laughs> such a cool guy, man. But he got arrested because he there was a guy, and I don't know how he fell for this, and we told him he was dumb for falling for this one, but there was a guy that had cash, and he um, or he needed cash. So he told the guard, I'll give you... I think he said i'll give you 300 to bring me 300 now this guy's going to visit every week 300 would be the easiest thing in the world to bring in cash because you can fold that thing up to small like that's super easy to get into a prison and uh so he tells the guard i'm going to bring you 300 or i'm gonna bring you six my, i'm gonna have my dad meet you and bring you 600 you bring me 300 and you keep 300 so he goes and meets him at walmart this, this guy that's supposed to be his dad and ends up being the inspector general the ig so and we're watching it on the news and like he's like one of the cool guards you know like he's one of the guards you want you know like he's treating inmates well but obviously he's doing so do they handcuff handcuff him right then and there and he's dragged off yeah they handcuffed him right then i think they checked the serial numbers of the money but you could see him walking out with flowers out of the walmart because he went and bought like flowers at the walmart how about did he did he do time or no, I think he ended up getting probation for it. Wow. Now, we had about an hour car ride here, and you told me two crazy stories from your time in prison. The first one, you got married in prison. Yes. Can you explain that? Like, how does someone get full-on married? Like, their wife comes, that there's a whole ceremony? Yeah, so there's, there's some rules to it. Like, you have to have been together for X amount of time. Um, I believe it's, like, a minimal over a year or something. Obviously, they have to be on your visitation list. And we had to like get some um, paperwork signed. So like she has to go get the marriage license. And that was hard because to be able to get counties to sign off on it while I'm incarcerated. So like to be able to have somebody know, because I can't sign it, you know, at the courthouse or wherever they go to get the marriage license. But anyway, so yeah, we got the chaplain to approve it. And they literally they call you out and you get a few hours up in the you get a private room 
You can't. <laughs> like, how does it work? You go to the visiting park. You so, go to the visiting park. Yeah, it's you're outside. In, you're in the visitor's park, and there was a couple um, inmates, orderlies that were working up there, and then one guard. So, like, a ring bearer? Like, do you guys get rings? Are there flowers? How does this all work? No, we just had a lady. There was, a, like, a minister that married us. Yeah, you could have the whole ring. We didn't have rings because we all got, we got tattoos, but... Um, you know, like I was broke, so that wait, I'm I'm just like I've lost yeah for words about like this whole marriage thing. So like, yeah, like it was a real ceremony. They had a minister in, come up there. Are you in a jumpsuit? Like, can you put on a suit? No, I'm in prison uniform. So she's in a white dress. I'm in a prison uniform, and they're reading us. I've read. I've wrote vows and everything. So. Uh, and can she spend time with you after? Yeah, so we could eat canteen up there. So we had a nice big ass ta- chicken. <laughs> you order that's your, your wedding meal is chicken. Yeah, a chicken sandwich and in, in out of the vending a machine. soda out of the vending machine. <laughs> so you guys didn't want to just wait till you got out. No, there was reason behind it. So um, so I could give her power of attorney. Oh, she had to be married for that. Yeah, so there was reasoning behind because we planned on having another ceremony out here. But um, for her to have power of attorney over me so she could make some, you know, legal decisions for me. Second crazy story I got to ask you about is you showed me a news article earlier about this guy that was at this prison camp with you. Can you tell us about that? So when I get transferred from Camp Cupcake, which what they called Avon Park when I got off the bus, Camp Cupcake, uh, I got put under investigation they said that I was doing stuff that I wasn't doing. Which you probably were. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they couldn't prove it, and I wasn't doing it, so not guilty. Model inmate. Yeah, I was a model inmate, but they ended up transferring me to a not-so-cupcake camp. It was uh, Columbia CI. So Columbia CI in, in the state of Florida is like notor- notorious for being one of the worst camps. Like gangland stabbings deaths like just insanity so i've always heard about it but i'd never experienced a camp like that anyway so i on the way there i know that i'm going there because the guy that's working in classification tells me you know when he pulls my folder he tells me where i'm going you know you could usually pay that guy to do that. I don't know if that happened with the feds, but... They would he, normally just tell you if you have a cool guard. Yeah. You wouldn't have to pay them, but... So, some, yeah, sometimes you had to pay them. It was a hustle for people in, in Florida prisons, like, to to tell people where they were going, because technically you're not supposed to know for it being a security. Yeah, that was like it was, in the feds, everyone was so curious, and there would always be the guards that would tell you. Yeah, so... I, and we would see that sometimes if there was a cool guard or cool inmate, but... It's crazy how everything's monetized. Everything's like every monetized. Little Capitalism action. at its finest. But like, it goes to and, show like what people are saying, like money buys power, especially in the justice system. And mm-hmm. I think that's why people are so worked up and divided over the Trump thing and, and this and that and weaponizing the government. And even like we were talking earlier about the Jeffrey Epstein thing about how he was like a sex offender that had a great prison stay his first time. And that was solely because, because he, had he had money. money. Yeah. Yep. And that inf- it, it, it's crazy. It, it literally changes everything. Yeah. So go on. You you got to well, this. Brian Stevenson you find out. said, "Wealth shapes justice in America, not culpability." So and that that's so true. But anyways, I get shipped to this camp, 
And of course, you know, like I'm asking everybody what it's like. I'm just curious. And um, so I get off the bus and the guy's like, dude, we're on lockdown. And I was like, for what? And he said, we just had an MIP. And I was pretty hip to prison at this time, but I still didn't know what an MIP was. So I was like, you know, at this point I've been in, I did seven years, you know, calendar years. So, but I didn't know what an MIP was. And he said, I said, what's an MIP? And he said, it's a murder in prison. And I was like, really? What happened? So he said that uh, there's a guy that got, he was getting, no, it's, kind of crazy you could tell a story yeah. Yeah. yeah so there was a guy that was getting sexually assaulted and he he was getting sexually assaulted by his roommate and he was trying to get out of the cell and in florida if you're trying to get out of, of a cell like they're not going to move you or give you a bunk change unless you snitch so this guy wouldn't snitch but um Every day he's going through it where this guy's trying to, you know, sexually assault him and stuff like that. So, um, anyways, he waits for him to get high on K2. And when the guy gets high on K2, he ends up stabbing him to death. And uh, every day that the guard was walking around when he was trying to move, the guard would be like, oh, I, I can't hear what you're saying. I can't hear what you're saying. So, he stabs him to death. He cuts his ear off gouges his eyeballs out, puts his eyeballs in a cup, coffee cup, puts his ear on a necklace, wraps his body in a, in a sheet, and then goes to the chow hall with the ear on the necklace and says to the Sarge, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Talking into the ear. That's fucking nuts. So, so crazy. They, they tell me this story, right? Um, and you, you probably can't believe this. You're like, no. No, no way this is happening in prison. And Because um, that was my reaction when you told me earlier. Yeah. Like, literally, I had to pull the article up for people and to see. And it's literally there. The headlines are, bad dude yeah. puts an ear on a necklace. Yeah, like, it literally happened. So and are we, you, like, scared when you get there, when you hear this story? Yeah, well, and then come to find out, it didn't even happen just then. Like, they were just trying to scare me up. It had happened a little bit before that. But mm-hmm. um, it they were just... There were so many crazy stories, though. There was another one where a guard brought a gun in to the inmates. The inmates ended up shooting each other, trying to get out of prison. Like, this really happened. So, um, That yeah. just happened in, um, in the federal prison camp. That's why I really think they're going to be cracking down on all this, because someone snuck a gun in mm-hmm. to the camp to, to, like, kill one of their visitors. It wasn't even to kill another inmate. Wow. That just ruins it for everyone. Yeah, it they, does. The gun didn't go off. It, it like, got jammed or whatever. But yeah. it's crazy. And, you know, hearing these stories from you, it just it has me thinking. It's like, that's what I love about this podcast because you could take any inmate and bring them on here, anyone that's been to prison. And they're going to have a story. A crazy story that's different than the other one. Like, we don't have to sit here and every week talk about, you know, prison hustle, this, this. And even if you did do that, it, everyone's is going to be different because there's there's a million different things. Yeah, everyone has a unique experience. I it, mean, there was a time I woke up to my friend stabbing my bunkie, like literally stabbing him in the face. So what are you just like on the top bunks? Yeah, I got blood. Like I hear him screaming and blood squirting all over the place, and I'm like panicking. You, you can't do anything in that, right? You have to stay. No, out of I it. stayed out of it. Yeah, and and it was racial too. So like that was another thing. So obviously, 
in Florida, it, the politics of race aren't as serious as what you hear like on the West Coast. But still, at this camp, it was a little bit more hardcore than most camps because this was a gang camp. This was at Columbia, same camp. But um, I'm still mind blown. They're calling it a camp. <laughs> well, I call it a camp. They call it a correctional institution. It's not okay. a camp. So okay. the the work camp, I call it. And you're right. It's a CI. It's yeah. a correctional institution. So um, you're watching your bunkmate get stabbed up. And yeah, you- I'm watching him get stabbed up. I jump out of the bed. Obviously, I'm like, y'all go at it. Like, but in prison, you can't stare at things. You know, like you, you gotta, gotta yeah. yeah, mind your own business. Get out. Like, I jump out. Like, it's and it's at breakfast time. It's like right when the doors pop open. So I get out and I let them do their thing. Does he die or is no? He, um- he doesn't die, but he's messed up. And it, all it was, what he's stabbing him with is a, a sharpened down toothbrush. So he filed down two toothbrushes. And then, like, uh, melted them together and wrapped them up. So Yeah, like, stabbings in prison are very different than what someone would expect, like, a stabbing on the street. Yeah. Like a well, there's all in, types of different weapons. Yeah, you know? like, a stabbing in prison could just be a couple, like, little holes in you that yeah, you poking got poking somebody, with. yeah. yeah. So, and that's more, what more of this was. Like, he was poking them in the fi- you know, like... That's crazy. But, I mean, still enough to... Blood shooting everywhere, kind of crazy, you know, just... Enough still to traumatize you. Like, you got to figure I went into prison the first time as, like, a grad, you know, went to college, played professional baseball, like, kind of lived a sheltered life. To by the time I got out of prison, like, I was completely, like, desensitized, like, becoming, like, a hardened criminal, you know, like, that was just the reality of my, my experience. How much time do you end up serving on those seven years? Five years, 11 months on that. So, and I did about four years on the first time I went to prison. So like almost 10 calendar years over the course of like your thirties. Yeah. When do you, so from 26 to, uh, 37. What year do you get out? 21. 2021. Mm -hmm. This is like right at the peak of COVID. Yeah. I got out in June, June 15th of 2021. So I'm right. Are are you sober when you get out? Um, yeah, but not for long. So, so you relapse again? I was in, no. I mean, I'm so when I got out, but not in prison. I wasn't. Yeah, sober. no. I know in yeah. prison you weren't. So yeah. by the time you actually got out this last bid, yeah, you sober. you were committed to turning your life around. Yeah. What what caused that? What what was that like that aha moment where you're like, yeah, I need to get this on track. You know what? The only difference that really made for me um, was they put me in mental health court, and believe it or not, like that had a profound impact on my life. Cause it gave me access to therapy, gave me access to medication, a psychiatrist. Like I was messed up in the head. Like I needed real stabilization and I never had that before. So like my, I always tried to just work the 12 steps. If you just go to an AA or NA, like get a higher power and I'll be fine. And th- that works great for a lot of people. But for me, that wasn't, it didn't work. Um, and it's not meant for everyone. Yeah. And it wasn't part of my story. So like, but when I got access to real therapy with a one-on-one with a therapist, you know, the courts paid for all this, like, so, and I had never been offered help on that level before from the courts. It was either slap on the wrist or prison, you know, like there was no in between. So to me, that was the biggest difference is me being placed in mental health court. Like it genuinely saved my life. I'm a big advocate for like men's health, mental health, going to a therapist. I did a year of court ordered therapy after that shit changed my life. Yeah. And I I got to sit with a woman that was a lot older than me. She was in like her 80s. Whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. 
like definitely contributed to like my emotional intelligence now, like taught me about feelings, about actions, about everything. It yep. just gave me like a whole new perspective. And that's that same it, thing with me. It's huge. Yeah. What did you end up like doing when when you got out when you were in that headspace? Like for work, for for anything. Oh, so yeah. I started working in treatment again. Like that was kind of like my go-to. Like treatments like the one job career industry that seems like they'll hire you if you're an addict and a convicted felon. Like those are like actually assets to getting hired. <laughs> because you can relate to the person. Cuz you can though. relate. Yeah. I'd but rather I, want someone treating me that there's been there. some insanity to it though, too, because they get a lot of people in early recovery. Like me, I was in early recovery. Like I wasn't fit to be, you're walking on eggshells. A little yeah. Bit. And I, they, I, they ended up getting a supervisor position. So like, um, I did that for a while and I had like a brief relapse for a couple of days and, um, damn near lost it all. And this was the first time where I checked myself into rehab and got help back on track back on track without anybody else on my own volition i did it like without having to get arrested without anything but they ended up violating me with my probation and you went back to prison for that or no i didn't oh. i went to jail i had to go after i went to treatment i checked i went into detox i went into inpatient treatment i went into outpatient treatment i went into a halfway house like i did the whole nine year like i because was you genuinely wanted to. i genuinely wanted it you had that will to live again yeah and i mean my wife filed for divorce like i was at on the break of losing everything again the, just the, like the that. wife you met in marriage in the, prison my the wife i met and married in prison. the one that you're still with now the filed, one i'm still with now she, she, filed oh, for divorce. she filed for divorce yeah after all that time like she finally was like you know what and i mean was that that tough love you needed to to, to stick that, it through? even at that point though like yeah i mean obviously that helped because she didn't enable me but like at that point like i was so done I just needed the help. Like I needed real help and I wasn't getting it. So like I finally went to a treatment center that like genuinely gave a shit about the clients. It wasn't about money because I had shit insurance. So like they wouldn't even, most places wouldn't even take it. But these people, like I begged them to let me in. Like I begged them. Like I was crying. I was in tears. I was like, please, you know, like I'm going to kill myself. Like this, the track that my life had been on is, you know, like I literally lost everything from all my twenties, all my thirties, like just gone, you know? And, um, and I'm not, I'm realistic, you know, like about the person I was, like, I know that I wasn't a good person. Like I, I'm very open. Like, I feel like making yourself vulnerable is a big part of your, you know, like disclosing, like really like, cause before I, like, I would always minimize it. It wasn't that bad, you know, like, um, you know, a big part of my recovery is like owning, like you began to own your mistakes, own my mistakes, like know that this, you know, like the, the person I was and know that I'm not defined by that, you know, but at the same time, like, um, there's a big power in that, like so much power to be able to analyze all the shit you fucked up relationships, you lost friendships, family, money, mm -hmm. whatever. And you can get up and you can own it and you can use that shit as like fuel to keep going and to propel you to like a, a better person. Yeah. That, that makes you a, a very different human being that a lot of people can't relate to. And it, and it gives you so much passion and energy and like a will to live. Well, I think you get a lot of people who go to prison and still want to play like that tough guy. Like, Oh, I'm gangster. Or, you know, like I was this in prison. I was that. And like, dude, like there's nothing like glamorous about that. And and most people like you go to prison and like everybody's a drug dealer like 
according to them. Let them tell it. Everybody's a drug dealer, like or a rapper. Who, yeah, like, <laughs> but who's smoking the dope? Like, if everybody's selling it, like, who the hell's smoking it? Like, really? Yeah. And uh, so, and that used to always get me. It's like, just be who you are. Like, if that's you know, like, and and that's how I feel like with me. Like, I'm this is who I am. Like, this is what I did. Like, and I own it. Like, and I'm not proud of it, but. There's freedom in saying, okay, like, yeah, like, I was bad. Like, I was not a good husband. I was not a good son. Like, I was not a good brother. Like, I was not a good friend, you know, not a good father. And drug addiction, like, I allowed it to rule my life. Like, And that's a part of you. It's always going to be a part of yeah. you. And what matters is what you do with it now yeah. that defines you. But then I went, yeah, when I, and when they put me in mental health court, like, and they got me medicated and you know, stabilized and like with a therapist, the therapist is what really to me changed, things. changed. Like it was a game changer. So what have you been able to do to rebuild your life, build like a strong foundation since you got out of prison? How have you been able to turn it around? So super active in my community, you know, um, obviously my marriage has gotten a lot better, like the best that it's ever been, uh, working for a company now this is like a big thing for me is because like i'm a huge prisoner rights advocate like we need major reform we need restorative justice in our system where you know in america we treat crime but we don't treat people and that's why our recidivism rates are so high and and i was fortunate to have the chances and the opportunities and the resources i have but the majority of people and you too like but the majority of people that come out of prison have nothing like and and not a hope or, or a prayer and so like that's a big part of my story now and my passion is being able to give back and i think the two biggest things that we face as convicted felons and we face many barriers and and we talked about this earlier but barriers to housing and barriers to employment and those were two big things for me when i got out this time and i stopped working in the treatment industry i was like what am i going to do with my life like i need something that i'm passionate about that what am I going to do for work? And nobody would hire me. I tried to go to like Home Depot and Target. Like these places wouldn't hire me. But I was like, I know I have this skill set, the aptitude to be able to work at these places. But because my, I was fresh out of prison and my record was as extensive as it was, they were like, no. So um, there was a community organization that was teaching felons trades. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give that a shot. Like, I'm going to go learn like HVAC or something. Maybe I could start my own business. So I go to this, um, this organization. It's called Project Lift. Huge um, help to my life. Like, it's faith-based kind of organization, but they don't like push it down your throat. But they teach you trades. And uh, I'm there, and they had a, a party, and I end up meeting the guy that I work for now. But at this party, I wasn't even going to go. My wife's like, you got to go, just go. They wanted me to work there and like help out. So I was like, okay, finally I went. The guy I ended up meeting is making tiny homes, but out of shipping containers. So like, I was like, dude, this is like brilliant, like a brilliant idea. So there's obviously a housing crisis. It's, you know, housing in Florida is like very unaffordable. And being a convicted felon and knowing how hard it is to transition back into society and be a returned citizen and not have access to housing. I was like, 
we could probably really make a difference in people's lives. So he offered me a job. I was like, dude, I'll take it. And um, I was working in the back at first, like building these things. And I'm not, I don't really have much of a construction history, you know, like um, my life was, you know, college, baseball, never nothing construction. But um, so I am working in the back and he sees like my passion and that I have ability to connect with people. And he's like, dude, do you want to come up front? And I was like, man, I'd love to. So he moved me up front. He let me help with like the marketing and sales. And like right now, what I've been doing is connecting with a lot of nonprofits, a lot of um, impoverished, you know, communities in rural areas. And we are providing you know, affordable, viable housing solutions. So like, that's a big part of like what I'm doing right now that's helping me is with like these container homes is creating a pathway to financial freedom for people. Um, we're employing, you know, second chance or second chance employers. So people that are coming out of prison, they can't get a job. We're helping them get a trade or, you know, um, learn whether it's electrical, HVAC, any kind of trade and have an opportunity to work. So, and then, you know, I meet with like a lot of the, the county commissioners in my community, you know, to help out like every chance I get, like I want to be able to give back because I don't want youth or other people like going down the same road I went. So like that's kind of like and what, you built a whole career around this. Too. I built a whole career around it. Yeah. Like it's done very well. So you got your life back. I got my life back. And I thank God for somebody that was willing to take take a chance on me and employ me and not be judgmental, you know, but it, you know, what's crazy is that my boss, so he started this company and he's a general licensed general contractor and he owned his own construction company for years. And he kind of had like this coming to God moment where he started, you know, containing luxury, which is we were manufacturing shipping containers in the tiny homes. But he, he, um, he said, you know what, your story and my story is just alike. He said, you know what the only difference is you got caught and I started a business. And I was like, you know, that's some of the realest, you know, shit that I've heard. Like somebody just being, and, you know, he's like, I don't care about who you were in the past. I care about who you are today. And I was just like, I wish more people could be like that. Like and that's more employers. why these stories are so powerful. Yeah. Like this story you've sat and told for the last nearly two hours, like that's not going to just impact people that have been to prison. It impacts every single person that's struggling with mental health, struggling with addiction, struggling with job loss, struggling with relationship loss. People need to know, like, you could go through really bad shit for so long. Everyone, like, puts people down for oh. going through the bad stuff. I remember when I got arrested, it was nothing but negative. There was no hope. There was jail for the rest of his life. His life's over. Where's this? Where's the silver lining? Why can't someone turn that into a positive? Why yeah. can't they make it through? There's such a stigma behind it, and like uh, your past does not have to define your future. Define it. Absolutely, and that's like that. That's the message. I will say that over and over again. That that's the message of it, and that's why I, like we love stories like yours, stories like mine that can motivate people. Mm -hmm. You know, to to get help or or just sometimes people need to hear another person's struggles to know they made it through. And that there's hope, you yeah. know, and that's what we're you know you you share the mess and then you turn it into a message. Like, and a lot of people they get caught. Well, it's not glorifying, you know, that past, but it's showing that you know even though we've been through some things, that you can still come to the other side of it. When I talk to the county commissioners, um, 
it was like last week. I was just speaking with our local county commissioners about I saw the clips from the that. benefits of mental health program, right? And how it really saved my life. And it was the first time I ever got placed in the diversion program and how America could benefit like countries like Norway where they treat inmates like human beings with dignity and respect. And um, I said, you know, we could really benefit from that type of system here. You know, with the restorative justice, we're restoring people to themselves and to their family and to the community. And um, but he said something that was really powerful then, because he said, even if we can just help one person, it's not only helping them, but you're helping their kids, their mom, their dad. They're You're changing like, lives. And like yeah. you said, but like I think about like me, when it, me getting well, like this is the best I've been these last couple of years for a really long time. And the impact that it's had on my dad and my mom, like we have the best relationship ever now. Like my sister, my wife, like that, you know, because for so many years, like they've been in such turmoil because of me and so much worry and never know when they're gonna get that phone call that either I'm dead or you know that I've done something that there's no turning back from and uh but that I never really looked at it from that perspective how much it impacts our loved ones you know like you you said you were close with your dad and I'm yeah. sure it killed him when you went to prison and and he still stuck by me and now like to see like the joy on his face knowing that like if he were to pass away tomorrow, he would know that I'm good. Like I have this yeah. figured out. I'm on the right track. Yeah. And you know, I, I want to continue to show him that. And I think for me, like the ultimate redemption, in my story is getting back to zero. Like a lot of people are trying to get rich or trying to do this to me. It's getting to zero, man. Yeah. Like that's when like, I'll even take, in the scoreboard. Yeah. I, all I want is an even scoreboard. Yeah. Like I, I look at people like that, Sometimes maybe they're homeless or they have less or like I'll have friends that complain about little shit and like they'll compare me to them. They're like, oh, like you're successful, this and that. But like I'm I'm behind you. Like I'm I'm negative yeah. right now, mentally, financially. So for me, it's all about getting to zero. Like to me, that's winning Yeah. to show that every single person that said I did shit intentionally, which whether it was true or not, whatever, by whoever standard that I can redeem myself, build this business, build this podcast, build the brand into something that no one ever imagined that I could do, turn it around, get to zero. I'm good with that. I could die the next day after that as long as I fulfill my mission yep. to finish what I started. Yep. And you've done a great job with it. Like, Thank you. Man. <laughs> and that's what I'm so passionate about with the company I'm with now. Like, We're liter literally providing like an affordable, viable housing solution to people that otherwise we're we're working with a nonprofit right now to help get the homeless off the streets like and i know what it's like because i've been there so no. i know what it's like to have nothing and to not even have shelters so like that does it gives me purpose and when you have purpose you know your whole life changes your whole life changes because now you know i like you said there's a mission you know like i lost my identity like i know who i am today and it's not in so much what I do or how much money I have, my socioeconomic status, but I'm comfortable in my own skin today, but it's, it is, it's so important to have purpose again. Yeah. I, I remember losing it for a while, like in between losing the nightclub, going to prison and then working, you know, at Whole Foods, I lost it for so many years. That was like six or seven years that I didn't have that. And to get it back, to get that flame back, like the same hearing you talk about the homes, like looking at you when I first saw you doing your speech and 
and on TikTok and stuff like that's your passion. Yeah. And like to be able for me to have that back, like I don't take that for granted anymore. Like the days of complaining, like I'm, I'm living another day. I'm doing what I love to do and everything else will fall into place. Yeah. What's like your next five years look like for you? Do you have like a plan? Yeah. So obviously my plan is to help continue grow the company that I'm with now, you know, containing luxury into a a company that's really providing sustainable, affordable housing, um, actively giving back in the community with, uh, advocating more for diversion programs in a more just and equitable system. I've got my friend Rashawn that's going to be home in a couple of years. Like he had a huge impact on my life and, we plan on probably starting a podcast when he gets out, but, uh, and to give people hope, like to know that, that real change can happen and that, you know, we need some restorative justice in America. And, uh, so yeah, that's really, really where it's at is my focus is housing and employment and, you know, mental health, like you said, like just, and you're on the right track for that. Now I want to close out with this question you could go back to your 19 year old self that was about to get that deal that signing bonus that would have changed his life forever and you could have a sit down conversation look directly across that 19 year old self what do you say don't take it (laughs) no um don't sell yourself short you know like you're worth so much more than that so at that time I was a lot of money. I put so much value of myself, my identity into that. So that's what I tell them. You're worth so much more. Don't take that quick payout. Yeah. Don't settle for less. Take the, the, the easier, the easier, softer ways, not always better. And you know what they say, they say it in relationships and it applies to life. Don't chase after it. It'll come to you. you. Yeah. Yeah. The things that are meant for you are going to come to you. And then, you know, obviously there's a little pursuit when it comes to women or whatever, you have to put in some effort. Yeah. But once you put in that pursuit, like if it's meant to be, it's going to stick around. Yeah. So, and just be genuine, authentic, like, and yeah. that's what I love about you. And like, that's what drew <laughs> me to your show is like, you weren't some prison TikToker trying to be something that you weren't like, you, you did think the podcast wouldn't work though. <laughs> you admitted that po- earlier. I was like, there's no way just doing clips from a show. You're doing great. And I love it. So <laughs> thank you, Danny. Where can uh, people find you at? Uh, Confessions of a Convict on Instagram, on TikTok, it's Danny F. Collins and, um, Containing Luxury, definitely check Containing Luxury out. So we're building manufacturing, shipping containers into tiny homes. We're trying to do a lot of good in the community with impoverished communities. Um, but yeah, and I think that's it. Awesome. I don't have no YouTube or anything yet. (laughs) You you will, you will. This will inspire you. (laughs) But Danny, this has been great, man. This is definitely one of our, like, longer podcast but i think we definitely dove into a lot i think there's gonna be a lot of takeaways Mm -hmm. i feel really good about this podcast um so i'm happy man i'm glad you came out and you made the trip for us and i appreciate you having me thanks man i hope hopefully your story you know helps us change at least one person's life that's it if we've done that we've probably changed 10 lives